may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Having spent the day in the house of the Lord, always trying to figure out what the Lord would have me to say at the close of such a day. My mind was drawn on, uh, I think it was Thursday, to this passage. So I want to leave some, some thoughts with you from Ezekiel 37. Familiar portion, I imagine, to many of you. Uh, we'll take time to read the opening 14 verses and uh, see this, this vision that the Lord gives to his prophet and then the, the explanation of the vision, what, what's going on here is given to us infallibly by the Lord as well. So Ezekiel 37 let us hear the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live." And ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, 
saith the Lord. Amen. May the Lord add his own peculiar blessing to the public reading of his infallible word. May we receive it in faith, believe it to the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the close of this, the Lord's day, and as many here gathered have spent the entire day here, and we have endeavored to call upon thy name, and we're glad that thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So as we leave the house of the Lord and head into the world and face a year that is before us, we would ask that we might be emboldened and empowered and encouraged by the word. Whatever crosses we bear, whatever trials we face, whatever uncertainties stand before us, may thy word ever be a rock. May thy promises be very real to thy people. May we cash in on that which you've promised to do for us. May we know that the blood of Jesus has made them sure to all who are thine. Bless us then. And in our meditation here tonight, we pray, give the Holy Spirit, extend thy kingdom, save and restore and encourage all gathered here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we were in the prophecy of Hosea, and I sought on that occasion to give a little insight into that prophecy. I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm not going to spend much time giving insight into all the backstory of Ezekiel. But I will say this, if you want a very helpful, though brief, introduction to the book of Ezekiel, just read Psalm 137. You'll find there the context of, of what the people of God were feeling at that time, what they were enduring as they found themselves in captivity. I'll read some of the opening verses of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Ezekiel ministered to a people who did not even possess the ability to sing. They were destroyed, their encouragement was gone, their hope was lost, and they felt themselves to be a hopeless people. We may feel ourselves to be discouraged at times, but I hope we never lose our song. And whatever we're seeing in the world, whatever's happening in our lives, that we're still able to sing. We're still able to sing to the Lord's praise, rejoice in the Lord's goodness, and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Those to whom Ezekiel stood before, those that he ministered to, had lost even that. Now what they were facing was what felt to them an impossibility. How they could ever be recovered, how they could ever end up back in their own land. And as I read over this, and actually on Friday morning at the elders' prayer meeting, I read this portion with the brethren who were there for the time of prayer, and was struck, again, reading over this and thinking about it, with what the Lord says in verse 11, when He gives interpretation to uh, this uh, vision that He gives to His prophet. Then He said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Our hope is lost. That's how they felt. There's no point in hoping. It's gone. Any expectation for the future had dissipated. All their desires and dreams, all that they longed for concerning their posterity had just evaporated before them and there was no hope left. And so the prophet is given this vision. The man who's called to minister to them is given a vision that he is then to impart to the people. Here's what God is saying. And in the vision, the opening 10 verses, you see it. Many of you are familiar with it. There the prophet is brought by God to look upon this this condition, we're going to look at it in just a moment. But it all is for the purpose of helping the remnant not lose hope. Now, we have spent the afternoon calling upon God, praying together, seeking the Lord for His blessing, bringing up the needs of our own hearts, our church, our ministries, missionaries, church plants, affiliated works, the need of our nation, our community. Many prayers, no doubt, not even expressed verbally that are going on within your soul, burdens you're facing, concerns that you have, and you're bearing, bearing them before God in all sincerity. And there can be, there can be the experience for the people of God, for the child of God, where he comes to a point and we believe there is no hope. That lost child is utterly lost. Being aware of some of the details, you're brought to think there's no possible way they can ever be recovered. And you can extend that to personal relationships, to other practical sides and elements of your life, aspects of what you're dealing with and facing, to the nation and beyond the work of God, in whatever way. There are things that you would consider concern to you, but the concern no longer has any element of expectation. Hope is gone. The house of Israel are depicted as dead. Very dead. <laughs> the bones that are before, laid out before Ezekiel in the vision are considered to be very dry. There, there's no indication of life here at all. And this is the house of Israel. That's what the text tells us. That's what God says. This is the house of Israel. They are gone. They are in this hopeless case. There's, there's no hope for them whatsoever. And they come to that conclusion themselves. But they are not left hopeless. The entire vision is to instill and encourage hope. To make them recognize what God is able to do. And indeed what God is going to do. And this is one of those portions that gives tremendous hope to us concerning the Jewish people themselves. When you, when you think of, of nations in the world and you think of people groups in the world and you, you try to pinpoint any particular people group that seem more lost than others, it's hard to think of a people group more lost than the Jew. They're so hard. The animosity they feel towards the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is palpable. If you don't know that, it's because you've never really been in the presence of it. They have no time for the gospel whatsoever. And the only period in history where there has been any real widespread transformation among the Jews was in the first century. 
what we have in the book of Acts. Since then, it's all, almost been, it's been so little accomplished. And anyone who works among them, anyone who aspires to see them converted, anyone who enters into the prayers of the Apostle Paul, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, is faced with constant discouragement that these people will not submit to Jesus as the Messiah. But this passage says there's coming a time where they will be gathered. Not just in the immediate and those who will be gathered in Ezra's day and so on, but even beyond. There, there certainly is encouragement here to expect an ingathering of the Jews. And it's going to appear to be out of nowhere. The Apostle Paul picks this up. He's got, he, he begins to deal with it in the book of Romans as he acknowledges the fact that the Gentiles actually become an instrument in the hand of God of provocation to the Jew. Make them jealous. And so I anticipate such an outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the Gentiles that it is so visible and so undeniable to the Jew that it actually begins to provoke them in the way that we expect and hope for. And so that all Israel shall be saved. All Israel not meaning every single last one of them. All Israel being parallel to the fullness of the Gentiles. All those chosen, they'll all be gathered in. We believe there'll be a great number of them we anticipate certainly that's what the Word of God indicates to us. So I want you to sort of put yourself in this place of, of thinking this is impossible. This is impossible. There's no possibility of recovery. Things are as bad as they can possibly be but God. That is the vision. That's how it's portrayed. Our hope is lost. That's how they feel. Maybe if we had ever been taken into captivity or lost our homeland and driven out of our homes, if, if we had been there, we might understand. I've not experienced it myself, but I've known it in my own family. What it's like to be driven from your home and the despair that comes from that. So it's something that people deal with. And this is how the Jews feel at this time. Our hope is lost. So let's consider this with the Lord's help. Hope when all hope is lost. Hope when all hope is lost. This is very simple. Just a few thoughts here as we look at this. First, there's always hope while there is a preacher to preach. There's always hope while there is a preacher to preach. The opening three verses turn our attention to Ezekiel, the prophet. And the very presence of the prophet is in itself an indication of mercy to the people. You read in verses 1 through 3, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. A couple of things to, to note here, a few things. When we think of this preacher to preach, what we're looking for, and when we see present in this preacher, first of all, one upon whom the hand of the Lord is, it instills hope to us. When we see a preacher, not just a preacher, but one upon whom the hand of the Lord is resting, that should give us encouragement. The hand of the Lord was upon me. This is not just a poetic description of 
God bringing Ezekiel into a vision. That's what's happening. He's being brought. God is moving in some particular way to put before Ezekiel a vision. And it's described in this way, the hand of the Lord is upon him. But it's not exclusive to such scenarios. We have similar language later in the life of Ezra, the man who leads the people out of captivity. Ezra 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was already scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So here's a man who's actually becoming part of the solution to the captivity. A man whom God is using to bring to pass in a, in a small way the return of the people from their captivity back into the land. And this man has the hand of the Lord upon him. That's how he is described. And it has very practical consequences. For Ezra, we are told that the hand of the Lord God was upon him in such a way that the king granted him all his requests. So what happens when God's hand is upon you, locked doors open. You're not expecting the king's favor. You could never dream that he's going to support this whole idea of them leaving the land and going back to their homeland. So locked doors that seem impossible to open are consequently opened when there is a man upon whom the hand of the Lord rests. It's the favor of God. Later in the same chapter of Ezra, Ezra 7, 28, it says, I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go up with me. You see the, the influence again of the hand of the Lord upon him. It strengthens him and it rallies support around him to add to that strength. It's not just the direct strengthening of God, the empowering of God upon his own life, but it actually begins to cause influence upon others so that other influential characters rally around to support the work and further strengthen the servant of God. This is the effect of the hand of the Lord being upon a man. And this is what we should pray for. It's, it's one thing, there's a blessing in having a preacher. But that preacher needs the hand of the Lord to be upon him. And not just the preacher. It's, it's very important for the preacher. Paul understood this. The great apostle, the kind of man you look at and you say, he doesn't need help from anyone. And yet he's requesting prayer that God's people would pray for him. Ephesians 6, 18 and following, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me. So as you're praying for all the needs of God's people, pray for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But this is something we all need, the hand of the Lord to be upon us. And as we think of our own needs and our own day, if instead of looking at the impossibility of what we're faced with, we begin to come back and say, the hand of the Lord is, a, is available to me. That should encourage. But especially when we have a preacher, we have men who are set apart, and we begin to pray and should pray. And I 
make no qualms about it. You, you should be praying for your preacher that the hand of the Lord would be upon him. This will be to our, our hope, encouraging and instilling and reviving hope within our hearts. But as you consider again this preacher, it's also one who is at rest despite the difficulty of the work. One who is at rest despite the difficulty of the work. The reason I say at rest is because how it is worded here, Ezekiel 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. Set me down. That's nearly always translated in the Hebrew Scriptures as rest. Made me to rest. So you have here a preacher who's made to rest. Made to rest. Now, it's hard to get preachers to be made to rest, but this is how it's described, that Ezekiel is made to rest and the environment is not conducive to rest. This is not encouraging. He's not going on vacation here. This isn't a vision of the Bahamas, right? This is a man being set down and given a depiction of the real extent of his ministry. Ezekiel's going about ministering to people, preaching the word, and God says, I'm going to give you a vision of actually what you're doing, Ezekiel. Okay, <laughs> show me what I'm doing. I'm going to put you in a valley that is filled with very dry bones. This is the house of Israel. These are those to whom you minister. A valley full of dry bones. <laughs> That's not encouraging. But in the vision, the language used is that he is, he is made, he is carried and put at rest, made to be at rest in the midst of the valley. And I, I just was struck by how when God is leading a preacher, when God is guiding a servant, when God is leading any one of his people, they will find rest even in the most difficult of circumstances. They're not looking for ease. They're not looking for it to be made simple for them. They're quite content with the fact that what God has called them to is difficult. And I couldn't help then reading this. Immediately my mind then went to the Lord Jesus Christ because our, our thought, our tendency is to believe if God's with a man, then it will just be all prosperity for that man. If God's with a woman, she'll just prosper in everything she puts her hand to. But that prosperity doesn't always look the way we might imagine. Our Lord Jesus is a powerful example in relation to this. Because as I said, came to mind just thinking of him in Luke 4, we read these words recorded of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan. He's just been baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. That's a Spirit-filled life there. And he is led by the Spirit. Don't miss that. The Holy Ghost comes upon Jesus Christ for ministry and immediately leads him into a wilderness to the end that he may be tempted. Forty days. He didn't struggle with it. 
it was a difficult time, but he, he was at rest being there, wasn't he? You could say the Lord was at rest amidst all the trial and difficulty of that period of 40 days of temptation. And yet he was at rest. And that's what you have for Ezekiel. The same thing. The Lord set him down in the midst of the valley. The Lord made him to rest in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. And that's the kind of men you need. Men of backbone. This is what we want our seminary to produce. Men who are able to face hard days because that's the kind of day we're in. And that's the kind of caliber of men it's going to require to keep going on. It's men who, when they're called by God to a valley full of bones, they stay the course. They're sent to the mission field where there's nothing. They have the William Carey experience of seven years of labor and seeing next to nothing. It's the kind of man that is needed. And when you see such men, when you see that kind of thing, we can be encouraged. God's doing something. I mean, if you take a man and you prepare him and call him to preach and you put him in a really hard place and he keeps going on, encouraging signs. He's also one who is familiar with the extent of the problem. Verse 2, Cause me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. The Spirit of God is not interested in encouraging what's known as ostrich effect or the ostrich something. Usually the ostrich effect. I think I've heard it framed in some other way. But basically the idea where, where people deliberately bury their head in the sand. When they just, you know, when there's something hard, just bury your head in the sand. The definition given regarding it, this effect is a cognitive bias where people tend to bury their head in the sand and avoid potentially negative but useful information such as feedback on progress to avoid psychological discomfort. It's often used in finances when people know they've overspent and they won't go and check the bank balance. They don't want to, they're burying their head in the sand. They don't want to know the details, even though those details are helpful. Well, the Lord is not in the business of encouraging such behavior. The prophet is brought, he is caused to pass by, he is made, he is led by God to pass by everything that's there, all the valley full of bones. And so he's able to recognize, behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. This is why the preacher needs to get out of his study. That's why he needs to go downtown and, and experience what only evangelism on the street can show you. If you don't evangelize the lost and put yourself in the front lines, you're going to forget just how hard the work is. That's why it's so crucial. You have to be confronted with the dryness so that you know just how dead your generation is. You know, you can get a flavor of it on the media, and headlines and everything else, but, but it's good to get out and just see it for yourself. And then one who knows the answer to the problem. This is where the real encouragement is. Verse 3, he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. The Lord was not looking for Ezekiel to respond, Yep, I have a plan. 
I, I know. In fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a university that specializes in a degree of dealing with valleys full of dry bones. <laughs> and I have already signed up for it. I'm partway through, and I, I, I think I've got the answer to the problem. That's not what the Lord is looking for. He's not looking for an answer that might say, well, if we only had such and such a budget, or if we had the ear of some powerful person on the earth, if we could only do this, that, or the other, that's, that's not what the Lord is looking to hear from His people. Ezekiel comes up with the, the right answer. Thou knowest. Thou knowest. The Lord doesn't want your plans. He doesn't want your ideas. He wants your obedience. He wants your allegiance. And He wants you to believe Him. Again, you go back, the entire history of the children of Israel is marked by this. Think of some of the experiences of the patriarchs. Abraham heads out there to face the kings with his 318 men. The Lord is with him. And you see it then with the children of Israel in captivity, in bondage, enslaved in Egypt. And God makes it all about him. He frames the whole thing, everything, even in the, the interaction with Pharaoh. Part of the, the whole narrative there is to show you that the deliverance of the people of God will not be attributed to anyone but God. You're not going to conclude that, well, Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a kind heart and had a change of mind. No, you just you see his heart becoming harder and harder and harder and it more impossible for him to change his mind at all. So that the deliverance and the reason for the deliverance is all of God. And when they get to the other side of the Red Sea and they sing their song, it is all about God. Thou knowest. When preachers preach in such a way so as to communicate these things, when they are marked by these kind of things, you can be encouraged somewhat. When you have a man like Ezekiel, when you have a man upon whom the God's hand is evidently there, who is at rest despite the hardness of his day and what he's faced with, who's familiar with the extent of the problem and he knows the answer is God and God alone, it's a good sign, but it's not everything. Which brings us secondly to see there's always hope when the Word is available. There's always hope when the Word is available. Verse 4, let's read some verses here. Again he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and ye shall live and ye shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone. And When I beheld lo the sinews and the flesh came up upon them and the skin covered them above but there was no breath in them. 
the Word of God. And the Word of God, in a particular way, first of all, a word that is communicated accurately. When you see the Word of God available and communicated accurately, you can be encouraged. So you have verse 4. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So it's hearing God's word. And you have the thus saith the Lord in verse 5. Then you have verse 7 summarizing, I prophesied as I was commanded. As I was commanded. I am not there giving my own ideas. I am not there paraphrasing the Lord's word. I am not there making it more palatable to my generation. I am not there trying to entertain. I am not there trying to live it out and mime it. Or I am just giving the word of God. That may sound so basic. And yet, if you... If you take any time to peruse what's available today, it's quite shocking how either the Word of God is set aside entirely, I mean entirely, or on almost every occasion, it's just a springboard into their own ideas and really all they have done is peppered their own speeches with Christianese sufficient so that most people will not get suspicious. Just give me the word. Give me all the word. Don't just give me the capital texts. Give me all the tough texts. Give me all the hard texts. Give me the challenging ones. Give me the ones that I have no idea what they mean. Just give me the word. When you see that, there's reason to be encouraged. Not only communicating the word accurately, but communicating God's sovereignty. When you find someone preaching in such a way that communicates the sovereignty of God, again, that's encouraging. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will cause. I will cause. So in the word that's being communicated, you have one who is placing emphasis upon God. God's going to do something here. And in our man-centered day, we may tip our hat to this, but seldom do we really believe it, that only God can do it. And there's no greater evidence of that than in the prayerlessness of the professing church. Remove a prayer meeting and you already have all the information you need regarding what the people really believe. They don't need God. They can do this without God. Many of you have been around long enough to have heard the stories of people coming from other lands, visiting the West, America, and making observation that it's, it's amazing how much can be done without God. What an indictment. America has no lack of ability in gathering people. It has no lack of ability of raising funds and finances. 
Organizations do it all the time. People go to school for this. They're hired for it. They're excellent at raising funds. You want to measure an organization by the number of funds that come in? Go ahead. There are people who are excellent at it. By the numbers of people, by all these kind of measurements, by all the analytics. I mean, there are churches today, and I am not joking. I have this on good grounds that there are churches today, and it's about analytics. The focus is on analytics. The analytics tell us this is what we should do, and the analytics tell us that this is not working, and so on and so forth. And you come back and you ask, well, where is the seeking of God? When Jesus stands in John 6 and the multitudes turn away, the analytics are telling him, Jesus, you're getting something wrong here. Everyone just left except the disciples. If something's going to be done that is impossible, then it has to be God that does it. I will cause breath to enter into you. And Ezekiel's happy to stand back and tell people God's going to do it. Don't look to me, look to God. Don't depend on me, depend on God. Recognize that God has said this, God has promised this, God has assured He's going to do this. He is sovereign. So that's what you want to hear. You want to hear that God will do it, not, not man. And then also a word that communicates God's love. The words communicate accurately. It shows that God is sovereign and that God is loving too. Verse 5 again. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. That's loving, isn't it? God's love for men. You're dead. I'll make you live. You're hopeless. I'll give you reason for hope. That's the love of God. And this is what we're to communicate. We're to go into a world, and when we hear this, give me the word accurately, give me the word that reflects that God is sovereign, and then the word that shows me that God is loving, that is to my encouragement. When I'm hearing this, if, I, if all I hear is that, is, is, is the words of men, God's words reshaped and rehandled and reformatted and so on, that's not encouraging because is, has God really said, said it? Can I have any hope? And the same concerning His sovereignty, if it doesn't focus on that, then where, where's the hope? In man, well, there is no hope. And then when it comes to whether or not God is going to do this, I see His love when He is saying, ye shall live. The Gospel of John is written that's focusing upon eternal life. And that focus upon the life that God gives is for the encouragement of people. The whole Gospel is written that you might believe. And all through it, look for it. In Him was life, chapter 1. Go through every chapter, see the focus upon life. This one who gives His life for the sheep. Laid down His life for them that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And on and on and on it goes. I am the resurrection and the life. This is all flowing out of the same God who says that He sent His Son. 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And finally, there's always hope. There's always hope while the Spirit will respond to prayer. There is always hope while the Spirit will respond to prayer. Verse 9. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet in exceeding great armies. Like, speak to the wind. It's illustrating of our, our calling upon the Spirit to be at work. That's what we pray for, isn't it? Nothing happens unless the Spirit is at work. And when we know that the Spirit responds to prayer, then we can have hope. No matter how bad your assessment is of our current day, there is much to encourage us. You have a congregation, in fact, there are many congregations in the city where there's still an emphasis upon the Word of God. As I said today already, preaching in the open air yesterday, and every time I preach down town, there are many, many, many people who walk by and they are speaking words of encouragement. God bless you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. You don't find that everywhere. So there's encouragement in that. And the fact that this city still has many faithful people trying to uphold the Word of God, endeavoring to preach the Word of God plainly and accurately and point that God alone is our only hope. He is sovereign and He's the one that must do the work. This is encouraging. You think, why? Why, is, why has God sustained it? Why isn't Greenville like other parts of the nation? They have no churches. There are many churches, or many cities that have no churches, as I said already today. Many places in America where there's nothing. Why should Greenville be any different? Why should anywhere be any different? Is God, is He, is he just mocking us? Is he, is he just looking at us and saying, well... I'm going to take care of you in this little way. Have your holy huddle there in Greenville and carry on. And the day will eventually come where we'll all go to pot. I mean, is, is, that, is that the mentality we're meant to have? Or are there churches scattered across the nation and little towns and cities like Greenville where there are still many faithful, God-fearing people who love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it not a token of His mercy? And does it not give us expectation for the future? God is not mocking. God is not done. God is not finished. And however bad is portrayed to be, and remember, the whole system of the media feeds off of your anxiety. It loves to make you anxious. Loves to. (laughs) That's what gets your attention, making you anxious. Isn't it so weird? Isn't it so weird? I mean, it really shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised. God knows our hearts. God knows our frame, doesn't he? He knows exactly how we're made. He knows our frame, that we are dust. And so what does he do? He fills his word with fear not. 
And then we go out into the world and it's just telling us, be fearful, be very afraid. The Muslims are coming. The immigrants are going to take over. Everything, be fearful, be afraid, be very afraid. No, fear not. Why? Go and read Isaiah 40 and find out why. Go and see. Go and see. The very point that I'm making is illustrated for you in Isaiah 40. We have all this promise of the Messiah coming and so on and so forth. But then, then you see this, this exalted view, despite all the difficulty of the day, this exalted view of God, where the, the aisles are like a dust in the bucket. Everything is small to God. And you read through that middle section and latter part of the chapter, and it's just this exalted place of God, this power, this, this encouragement to us that this is the one who rules. And our response is really simple. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In the hardness of the day, see the bigness of your God and know that in the most hopeless scenario, God is still there. If he is sending preachers, and he is, we can be encouraged. If they are being faithful to the word, we can be encouraged. And when we know the Spirit responds to believing prayer and comes to the cry of the people of God, so that in a moment there can be a transformation. I mean, is this, is this not a depiction? Is verses 9 and 10 not Acts 2 and 3, is it? Prophesy unto the wind. Pray for the promise of the Father. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. The Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. The apostles preach the word. 3,000. Breath came into them. And they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. There's hope. Hope when all hope is lost. Can these bones live, thou knowest? Let's pray. Let's bow together in prayer. God shows his prophet an entire valley full of bones. You look at your family and you see maybe two sets of bones or six or ten or whatever. It's not a valley full. He's able. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above what we can ask or think. We have to really start believing him. Don't minimize your daily diligence in the place of prayer and don't be afraid to set aside time, even 10 minutes, and just bring the one burden you have, those dead bones, bring them in prayer to God.
this may be a year you see your own little miracles and working of the Spirit. Why not? Lord, we pray, help us. If we feel ourselves to be like the children of Israel and we find ourselves like a people in captivity where there's no hope, hope is all but lost, come to us again with thy word. Give us an understanding of your promises. Help us to see your greatness and your power. Let us not limit the Holy One. Time and time again, thou hast proved thyself faithful. One generation after the other learns afresh that with God nothing is impossible. Oh Lord, deliver us from our unbelief and help us to see the tokens of encouragement we can see. We have preachers, we have the Word. And the Spirit is right there to come and answer to prayer. So help us see thee at work these days. Give encouragement to your people. Give them faith-filled prayers, prayers born in heaven, where they are simply echoing to God that which the Lord has put in their hearts. Hear and answer, forgive our shortcomings, heal our backslidings, make us to know that we are loved freely, and help us to go into this week knowing the joy of the Lord is our strength. So give courage to us, Lord. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.